Welcome to the Humanity First podcast. This is the show that looks at what's taking place inside of Bamsey and some of the societal issues that uh, need to be addressed as we are truly putting humanity first. As uh, Peter Evers, the CEO of Bamsey, joins me here on the program. Peter, great to see you again this week. You too, Chris. How are you? Good. Um, I'm really excited for our guest who's going to join us on the show today because Bamsey has a, a program which is really intriguing to me in how it is conducted and the type of work that is done and the type of growth in the individual in the uh, individuals served and it's the new start brain injury community center uh, michelle martin is the program director it's in worcester and uh, she's going to join us to talk about that so that's going to be uh coming up just a little bit we're really excited about that but wanted to start off with um just kind of a discussion as to you know where we are in society at this point in time where um, Brad Parscale, uh, Donald Trump's campaign manager, was uh, let go and moved into a senior advisor role. And um, he had a incident at his home in Fort Lauderdale, uh, which uh, police recalled. He had barricaded himself in. He had weapons and uh, was threatening to harm himself and taken into pro- protective custody. And, you know, anytime you look at the comments in stories uh, and on in tweets, um, you will be horrified. And this was another one of those circumstances where um, individuals seem to be actively rooting for someone that they did not know, there's a human being, um, to take their own life. And thankfully, there were a lot of folks who responded on Twitter and said, this is wrong. Now, I have an individual who I know who committed suicide, or we need to put our politics aside and, you know, respect um, the fact that we're all human beings. And, you know, to me, it, was, it spoke on a number of different levels, A, to how people, you know, still kind of look at suicide um, and, you know, how some of the stigma surrounding that, uh, and B, that, um, you know, we have created an environment where the opposition is subhuman. And um, we don't treat them as we would other human beings. And you know, I'm curious as to to your thoughts regarding you know the the stigma of suicide, but also a environment where we seem to be largely disconnected with the humanity of others. Yeah, it's just a very tragic story, and uh, the interventions I think ended up hurt, uh, ended up. Um, keeping him safe in the end in, in the short term. But I think it's indicative of where we are. And, you know, we, we often talk about existential threats to this country and to the world, actually. And we've just, in the middle of COVID now, it's always a reminder of how fragile our sort of um, our equilibrium is, if you like. But I do think one of the existential threats is the division in this country. And I'm not going to get into a conversation about who's responsible for that. It's actually not helpful. What is helpful is to observe the dehumanization of individuals who don't agree with you um, and, and, the, and the sort of retreating into different corners and the echo chambers that we create with each other so that we're just talking to the same people who are agreeing with us adds to this um, sense of alienation from the rest of the people. I I was driving down here today and um, somebody had a huge uh, Trump sign um, which was obscuring 
part of the landscape and there was another big sign on the sign saying that this this sign is being video surveillance so there's an assumption that somebody's going to vandalize that uh, that expression of somebody's political beliefs much the same as one that was up the road a little which had been vandalized for uh, for Joe Biden so what is what is making people feel like, like they need to destroy something which is an expression of somebody's opinions when we live apparently in a democracy that allows individual thought and conversation and actually the definition of patriotism if you ask me is the ability to have discourse around difference that gets you to a country that allows that kind of discourse we're not like that at the moment i was up um camping in the white mountains and above uh, the week before last. Um, and I have to say, it was a different New Hampshire. I'd never been that far north above the uh, above the 45th parallel. Um, and there is a group of people who feel completely forgotten by the rest of the world. Now, they, I didn't see a Biden sign uh, in the whole time that I was up there. That is, that is, I guess you would call it Trump country. Well, you can scratch your head about that but you can also say what has the political system does done for people who have been so marginalized and so forgotten in rural communities um who you know did still don't have internet service up there for instance it's it is um it is like living in two different countries and before you before you start to um make outrageous statements about why didn't he just do it or whatever you might want to sit back for a minute and think about the fragility of of the human condition there is not a time in anyone's life i would say where that where any individual hasn't thought that they were desperate thought that there was no way out of a situation thought that taking their lives might be the only option um, and we should have zero tolerance for that doesn't matter who that person is, what they represent. The, that destruction of human life is something we should have zero toler tolerance for in our communities and in, uh, in our culture. Yeah, there's a lot there, and um, I completely agree in regards to um, suicide. Um, life is precious, and um, you know it is incumbent upon all of us to um, make other individuals feel that. Um, their contributions to society uh, and their humanity is um, is honored and respected. In regards to our politics, um, a lot of individuals in this nation have lost hope. And some individuals live in rural areas, like you're describing. Some individuals live in urban areas. And when you've lost hope and you don't feel represented, you're likely to a lot of times be susceptible to the loudest voice you know in the room or somebody that is claiming that they know and understand you and what's been so frustrating is how these individuals who in that rural area that you're describing and the urban area have so much in common and in fact um they are both very much the victims of uh, economic circumstances and you know, various things that may have taken place through the uh, through the years that um, have left them in the condition that they you know find themselves in, and the vitriol that we have for one another, in which individuals do not even know who that person is, what their circumstances like. There's it's the uh, there 
a lot of people have like the online persona and the human being persona mm-hmm. and you'll the human being will be a charming individual the online persona is daggers <laughs> <laughs> and um you're like well, how does that where, where, how does that equate and i think a lot of times um you know we end up um trying to demonize what threatens or what opposes or what is um has it offers a different perspective and the easiest thing to do is when something is said that you don't like to name call whether it's um in politics or whether you're trying to marginalize an individual based upon their religion their race or ethnicity and that i think with our online culture and the lack of accountability has created an environment where people feel more apt to say and do as they wish to push aside what they feel threatened by yeah yeah and and then issues of opinion become issues of um philosophy and and i've noticed that and and i'm just going back to my camping trip which was very cold last week but um we were driving around and there was a sign that said um vote republican to save america and I, and I was trying to unpack that in my head because I'm not a Republican, although I know a lot of Republicans who are good friends of mine. And, and I thought, well, that's an interesting perspective on life. And I reflected on a, a, a conversation I was having in, um, in um, Medford one time with a bunch of guys. And I, I was advocating for universal health care with a, with a group of Republicans. Um, and this friend of mine turned to me and he goes, that kind of talk will destroy this country. And he demonized me for, for wanting health care for everybody. Now, I am sure there's an a- analog for anybody who happens to be on the liberal side for anything that comes out of the rights uh, right. mouth. Like, you know, you shouldn't allow, um, you shouldn't put restrictions on pharmaceuticals or um, maybe that's a bad example. But, that, you know, there, there are many. Um, the Supreme Court is a really good mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, sort of powder keg at the moment. If we don't sit back and think to ourselves, okay, what's the wh- wh- what's driving that fear? What's driving that opposition to my opinion? Because if we sat down and talked about it, there would be take the healthcare. There would be a number of things we would all agree on, which is everybody should be healthy in this country, regardless of where they are, and everybody sh- everybody should have the opportunity to healthcare for their children. There's two things that really it would be hard to disagree with, and and I think we come at it at a different way. We come at it as whatever's coming out of your mouth, I'm going to disagree with, and I'm going to build a narrative which is purely and simply based on my need to discredit your opinion. Now, if you actually reversed that, you could actually even do it with the, with with abortion, and you could say, well, what can we agree in? A healthy child. Begin from there, and yeah. where do you get? We just, I think, we're, we've got to a position. I don't know why, where we're where we're arguing in a very, very negative and uh, and, and opposed way. Yeah, I think that um, there are a number of reasons, you know, for that that we can go into. Um, a, um, it is uh, productive in terms of media. Um, media likes to operate in conflict. Um, you know, if, take a budget as an example. Um, Republicans and Democrats will probably agree on like 95% of the budget, but you look at, well, what are they going to disagree on? They'd pick out that 5%. And I think that, um, you know, very often there are challenges in regards to, um, you know, how things are presented. 
and um, they are presented in in conflict. Conflict is helpful for both parties in terms of raising money um, and to find out what they're against as opposed to what they're they're for. So there's also the aspect of politics where a lot of it is um, is theater, and mm-hmm. the people outside of politics take it as personal, and that has always been. You know, my challenge, one of the challenges that you look at is uh, we used to be in a place where you were you would not wonder if an individual is acting in good faith and you wouldn't judge their intent. And now we are constantly judging intent, whether a person's a good person or a bad person, you know, a saint or a sinner. um, You know, it's always there and there is not that assumption of good faith. And that you know this person that you're talking with, they're not, they're they're not coming at it from a perspective thinking, well, Peter's a good guy, and he may be misguided in this particular issue, but um, you know, let's let's figure out what we what we could agree on. Right. No, you're you're presenting an argument that's going to destroy the country, and that type of um, rhetoric is just not something that can start a conversation. And, you know, I know a lot of people listening to this are like, well, this is way too much in the weeds. But this is why a lot of the things that we talk about, um, you know, on this show, you know, don't happen. Is that uh, it is beneficial to all sides um, to be in stagnation. Because then they blame other people for why things didn't take place. It's, you know, remarkable when you look at polling data and you'll find that the approval of Congress, as John McCain used to say, is basically that of staffers and blood relatives at 17%. <laughs> but everybody loves their own congressperson. <laughs> They're always above 50%. Not always, but generally above 50%. The senators are above 50%. So it's all the other ones that are the problem. And that model um, has been one that has been successful for getting politicians Re-elected. So conflict uh, is what works, and it has gone ratcheted up so much, though, because of um, social media and people that don't necessarily understand the nuances of what's taking place, and you know have sought to um, further create division. Yeah, and I think if you hear, you know, going back to our uh, the horrible uh, incident that began this with uh, President Trump's staffer, you know, those echo chambers. There's one voice that says, "Well, you know, why didn't you just why didn't you just let him or whatever?" And then you know that gives credibility to that initial thought that you have. So you might repeat that, and uh, and you know, again, we move away from decency. And I think, you know, the other thing, Chris, is that in a political environment, but it's not just political, it's in our everyday lives, we're beginning to criticize and call people traitors to our cause when we reach across the aisle, when mm-hmm. we look when we look for compromise. And if you look at American politics and any other country, successes have come for the country when people compromise, when people reach across the aisle and say, look, let's just put the Democratic Party or the Republican Party aside for a minute and work out what's best for 
this country. Actually, COVID did that. The COVID allowed those parties to agree on something. I mean, For that's a brief a, it's falling apart. Right. <laughs> but right when it happened, um, you know, look what happened in India. Not a penny came to people who were already poor. That you know, we have a good established uh, network. We're just not using it properly by compromising on the things that we should be. So we're going to hand it over to Peter now, who's going to introduce our guest uh, for today's show. So today we have the pleasure of having Michelle Martin on the show. She's the program director for the Brain Injury Center in Worcester. Um, and this is all part and parcel of us getting messages out about what BAMSI does and, you know, encouraging people in the community uh, to take an interest in our organization, but also to encourage people to be interested in working at BAMSI. And uh, Michelle, thank you so much for agreeing to do this because I think in many ways um, these conversations really are the real side of BAMSI and, and, and that message getting out to people I think is really important from those people who are doing the, the vital work. So thank you for doing this today. Sure, thank you. Now, I... Uh, I'd like us to talk a little bit first of all about the program at the Brain Injury Center and um, you know and the pilot that we're doing with the state and um, and maybe just get a little bit of your expertise on the program itself and the t and the kind of referrals that uh, that we have for folks sure. who are living there. Sure, like you said, it's actually uh, we're funded through Mass Rehab and. It's a unique program, not just for BAMSI, but for the state. It's considered the state um, pilot program model for this clubhouse model of service for adults with brain injury living in Massachusetts. So the hope is our center would be the first and model for that to further expand throughout the state as Mass Rehab is able to obtain further funding for those programs. So we actually uh, have been operating with them since um, July of 2016 was when we started offering our services. And we actually started uh, the services at an existing BAMSI location for temporary, which is the site in Worcester where we have some administrative space. So the first year of service, we operated there until our permanent home, which is now in downtown Worcester, um, which is a much better location for the model of service that we're offering, uh, was ready. So we moved into our permanent place August of 2017. So we've been there a few years now. Yeah, I have just a number of questions because the, the service and the work that's done there really fascinates me. And uh, I just want to start off with... Um, what types of individuals are you serving? What types of, um, how do the brain injuries occur? Um, sure. And what's kind of the spectrum of, um, of individual within uh, the, um, the, the population? Sure. Uh, the goal of the program really initially, we work closely with the SHIP division of Mass Rehab, which is the statewide head injury program. And that division serves adults with traumatic brain injury. So the goal of the model was really initially to serve individuals with brain injury that for many years under SHIP really have been um, sort of underserved and at risk just because they didn't have a lot of day support services for the individuals. Um, so that was really the first um, target for us was to really attract people that are living in the community 
um, really alone, sort of underserved, otherwise with no services in place. So a lot of our membership, especially early on, uh, was that um, population of individuals with brain injury that we met. And it was, you know, for years, it, you kind of thought, like, how have they been doing it alone without this type of service in place, just living alone and uh, not having the support. So that was how we started. And as we've grown now, we're uh, open to all people that have brain injuries. So as long as you can, that as long as you have a brain injury and can really benefit from the model of service that we're offering, um, we, you know, consider membership. And, and what types of, of brain injuries uh, are you, um, you know, addressing? Is it generally um, things that happened at, at a workplace environment? Are there individuals that served in the, the military? Um, you know, trauma as a result yeah. of emotional abuse? Um, we have um, probably about 75% of our members have traumatic brain injury, which is from Trauma, such as we have a lot of people that sustained a brain injury from car accidents, motorcycle accidents, uh, falls, uh, assault is a big one, too, that we see. Um, and then we also ha serve people with acquired brain injury. That would maybe be about 25% of our membership. So those individuals sustained a brain injury from something internal or medical that happened, a stroke event or a brain tumor. So we have two different types of brain injury that we're serving. And then we also have people that, like I said, we met probably earlier on that have been living with a brain injury for a really long time and were really just underserved or maybe in not the right service for them. They might have been getting services with adults that had other types of disabilities, which wasn't a good fit for them. But then we also meet a lot of people that have newly sustained a brain injury and are now trying to kind of figure out what is going to be the new normal for them. I want to ask both of you something, actually. Yeah. And Peter, I'm interested in your responses as well. How important is that specialization in that... Um, individuals get the care for exactly what they need versus, okay, um, these individuals all have um, things that they're dealing with, um, and uh, a developmental disability uh, will put them together with a brain injury. How important right. is it to have that specialty, and, and in some cases, sub-specialization, so that you can treat them the way that they need to be treated and meet them where they, they are? We'll start with Peter, and then... Do, do you mind, Michelle, if I answer that first and then you sure. can give the real answer? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you go back 40 years, maybe even 30 years, um, I think the, the, the decision about service delivery is very different from what it is today. Um, people would tend to be put in one bucket, if you like. Oh, that's a person with developmental disabilities, whatever it is. I do remember, and I'm going to give away my age here, but in the 1980s, working in human resources for an organization in England um, where um, we uh, had a, a disability workshop. Uh, where people would come in and we had to meet a quota of, you know, five, uh, 3%, I think it was, and those people did nothing all day. They just sat filling a quota. And I always remember feeling there's got to be more for that. And I think, I think when you think about it, we're looking 
now at individualized service plans. And if you have an agency that has the underpinnings of a strength-based um, intervention, maximizing people's uh, potential in the world and involving family and the community in care planning, then you get much closer to identifying what those specific needs are. And if you also say, well, look, we're looking at developing evidence-based practices for interventions with specific conditions such as closed head injury or uh, acquired or traumatic, uh, um, then you get the best out of the intervention and the person does the best that they possibly can. So, uh, Michelle, I'll hand that back over to you and uh, and see if you agree or disagree. <laughs> It'll be interesting. No, I think that I agree completely. That's exactly what I'm thinking. And as far as serving people only that have brain injury, I think that's sort of a key thing for our membership is they feel that connection. They've never had a place where it's only people with brain injuries, so they have that one thing that they can all connect and relate to and learn about brain injury. We do a lot of brain injury awareness just because it affects everyone so differently, and even though maybe physically this person is affected, it's still that brain injury that they have in common, and it gives them a feeling of that peer support at the community center that they really haven't had before. Yeah. And so, you know, could I just ask you to expand on that a little bit? Because the clubhouse model is a very specific model that, uh, mm-hmm. as we all, as I'm sure many people know, originated way back in the 50s and 60s with the international clubhouse model. And really, that was built on a serious and persistent mental illness population. I'm just really interested about how this idea came about to work with people with uh, acquired ba- uh, with um, head injury. I think it goes back to that where people have been displaced into other types of service or maybe the brain injury services they had gotten were always more the physical therapy and the occupational therapy and speech therapy rather than this psychosocial model of rehabilitation that we're offering. So it gives the individuals, you know, we're running the community center together and we're relying on them and they feel a sense of accountability and responsibility and that giving them something meaningful to do during the day rather than just those tasks like you had said earlier where it's kind of like here's you know here's a puzzle here's a pegboard here's you know uh riding the bike or something we're actually doing the work that they're doing with us is work that in a typical program might be done by the staff while the members sort of sit idle and we're doing it together side by side with them so they do feel that responsibility that's that's so important as michelle martin joins us in the program she is the program director for the new start brain injury community center uh, part of uh, bamsey and that is in uh, worcester uh, massachusetts i want to ask you a little bit about the um the programs and how you build the programs out for uh the individual and um you know, is as you're referencing, there's different types of um, things that you're working with. There's the mm-hmm. uh, the motor skills aspect of things, um, and I, I I'm sure certain that it if what you do with them is based upon you know, what their individual um, needs are. So, what do you see sure. being the, the the spectrum of care that um, is provided, and how do you build a program, you know, out for an individual so that you're um, helping them from 
uh, a, a mental standpoint, but also in some cases, uh, there's, I assume, um, physical limitations based upon mm-hmm. uh, the brain injuries. Sure. So the clubhouse model we run is like a typical clubhouse model where we have different work units throughout the community center that run throughout the day. Um, we have four work units. We have membership unit, advancement unit, janitorial unit, and kitchen unit. And those four units are really the components necessary to run the center and provide the services to our members. So within the membership unit, for example, that unit handles all new members. Uh, They do tours. They put together all the tour packets. Uh, They handle all of the ongoing member services as far as making sure individuals have the schedules they need throughout the week and the month. They handle a lot of the outreach that we do. We do a lot of um, membership outreach where we call members if we haven't seen them. We also do a lot of community outreach where we're out um, at different events tabling and trying to bring that brain injury awareness to the community as well as uh, let them know about the community center. So normally a lot of that work would be done by staff within a typical program, but the clubhouse model really allows people to take part in that side by side with the staff and people that it brings out the peer supports as far as if we have someone that they only has use of one arm, they're going to work together to hang the schedules or fill the tour packets. It's really a side by side working model. Um, The advancement unit provides all of the sessions around daily living and employment and supports as far as finding benefits. So anyone that needs something as far as that benefit support or employment support can see people in the advancement unit. Kitchen provides a meal every day for membership, so they're doing all of the meal planning, the shopping, the cooking, serving, all of that. And then the janitorial unit cleans around the center and does some light maintenance. So that's what we do throughout the day as well as uh, we provide wellness activities and sessions throughout the week as a big component. So essentially you could say that this is a joint effort which is much more inclusive of people and much more in line with this idea of um, uh, of our organization helping people as opposed to directing them in terms of exactly. their care which mm-hmm. i think which i think is the it's really the only way to go in terms of treatment mm-hmm. of uh, of people with uh, with human conditions uh, if if you don't mind me saying so i have a question uh, which is a sort of uh, more up to date question um, you know, for the last six months, we've been dealing with a, a situation across the world that has disrupted everybody's normal way of doing business. And I would imagine mm-hmm. that at the program, we've had uh, a similar disruption. I think what I'm asking is how have we managed to keep in touch with folks and uh, and continue sure. to provide a service that, that is invaluable under COVID? Right. It's been It's been difficult for the model of service that we're trying to provide that's for sure because everything is side by side we're doing it so it's really sort of had to shift what we're doing right now Um, one thing we have done is we've joined the um, 
International Brain Injury Clubhouse Coalition and sort of learned and grown with them as to how to provide that, what you call that work order day model, almost virtually. So we've been working on that. Initially, it was just a lot of, um, it was myself and the program coordinator left on site while the other staff, the case managers, were just dispersed into support residential services or some um, had to go out on leave of absence for other reasons. So him and I were left to sort of figure out how to go forward and not know really how long it was going to last. So we started with just phone outreaching to everybody at least once a week. Uh, we have 53 active members right now. So for him and I, it was just the calls wow. and making sure people had what they need because a lot of people are home alone in apartments with no support. Um, only a, probably about a handful of our members live in residential supports. So we were really focusing on the people that do live alone in the community, uh, trying to get out supplies to them, whether it be um, food. We kind of just got rid of what we had left at the center and then tried to arrange rides for them if they needed cab rides to the grocery store or delivering of supplies like the PPE and the cleaning supplies and just managing that. Um, Then by April, we were able to get Zoom up and running and Mm -hmm. slowly over the few months, him and I developed um, sort of just starting with Zoom check-ins and then just made it into more formal programming. And now we're running four Zoom sessions a day that sort of mirror what we were doing on site. So we have our morning wellness, we have our morning meeting, our wellness sessions, our advancement sessions all at the same time. Um, And we were able to, starting at the beginning of August, we were able to start bringing people back on site. So that was (laughs) interesting. And it's very different on site, of course. You know, people like the community center because you have freedom to come and go and do what you would want throughout the day. That's part of the whole model mm-hmm. where now it's, it's very rigid, which isn't, you know, it's, it's a little bit right now more so like a typical day service where this is where you are throughout the day and they don't have that freedom of movement throughout the day. And, of course, we're not doing the food service and the salad bar right now. So we're, we're all adapting, but I think the people that have returned on site are happy to have some routine back yeah. in their day and have that sort of home base. Yeah. Well, you know, I just want to take this moment to thank you for your ability to be flexible. They they say the reason we human beings are so successful is our adaptability and flexibility, and that's exactly what you have just described in the last six mm-hmm. months. And, you know, if seven months ago somebody said we'll be having this conversation about something that affected everybody in the world. Uh, I just wouldn't have believed it. But the way that BAMSI staff have uh, have reacted to and continued to keep in touch with people and Mm -hmm. really keep people afloat is remarkable. And I just want to really thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, in conclusion. So we don't really, uh, oh, I was going to say, we haven't even officially called it in our center reopening at this point because we're not really open and running the way that we were. We just are saying that we're offering some on-site, on-site supports at this point is more what it looks like, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like to think about re, calling it reintegration than anything else. Um, yeah. And, you know, that pathway is uncertain, but uh, keeping my fingers crossed that we'll be able to keep adding, you know, our FaceTime, um, I shouldn't have said FaceTime, the face-to-face time that we can have with people as we go forward. So, yep. uh, yeah, it's been a real challenge. There's no doubt about that. Definitely. So in conclusion, I just wanted to um, gauge from you you know, the enjoyment that you get in seeing, you know, the growth in individuals from within the program. In particular, you know, I was thinking as you were talking about the two individuals who um, each only had usage of one hand hanging mm-hmm. you know, a schedule together. You know, what is what is that like, particularly when you see, um, you know, the peer-to-peer aspect of things mm-hmm. and individuals who have struggled to find commonality, perhaps with others through the course of their lives, to find that commonality from within this program? I mean, for me personally, I've I've worked with BAMSI since um, 2006, so I've been in BAMSI day services and different um, leadership roles for the last 14 years, and I, I've never seen a model of service like this be really so successful and have the members that attend the program really truly enjoy it and what happens more than not I've never seen is where people will start and then just want to come more often versus oftentimes it can be the other way around where people will start and maybe find out it's not for them or cut back where we have the opposite situation where we have people attending and starting slow and then just almost consistently wanting to come and add more days it's it's great to see. I've never seen people feel like and hear so consistently that they've sort of found their niche and, you know, what they've been missing, really, I think. Yeah, I think. So for me, it's been really rewarding. I just really enjoy it and just learning so much about brain injury and uh, what's been needed for them for so long. I, I haven't seen this in day services before. Yeah, I think, you know, it, the proof of, of this is that if you are, if any human being is involved in a process and feels a sense of belonging, they're mm-hmm. going to be more likely to show up and want to be involved. And that's it. That's yeah. the essence of the clubhouse movement. Yeah, I think yeah. it's so s- smart the way that it's done uh, to create that belonging amongst the individuals, but also to establish a program where you have, you know, responsibilities and are a part of what is taking place and um yeah as again as i've started to read more about this program become more and more uh interested and it's as you referenced earlier serving as a pilot for um the state of massachusetts um and in my view it's a really intriguing way to go about this type of care but also Mm -hmm. in many ways you care in um in general uh in this type of a realm Mm mm-hmm appreciate your time. Thanks so much. And uh, we shall talk again soon. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, That is Michelle Martin joining us here on uh, BAMSI's Humanity First podcast. And uh, we appreciate Peter and Michelle for joining us here on the podcast today. And we shall check in with you again next week. 